The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Last week I started talking about um, desire and the experience of abundance and you might think that they're opposites. But because we have desire, we don't feel so complete. But I think the problem in life, and um, in particular, the Buddha highlights this. He talked about desire probably as much as anything. And it's not, it's not as simple as just seeing desire as being bad. And sometimes when people are wanting to quickly summarize the teachings of the Buddha, they'll say something like, suffering or desire is the cause of suffering. It's probably better to say something like, misunderstanding desire is a cause for suffering. Last week, uh, I was in here, but the, in the Sunday talks last week, I. I spoke about how there are many different kinds of desires. You know, there's the obviously painful neurotic desires where the mind is obsessed about if only I had this, then I would be happy. And we call that craving into grasping, where the mind fixates on this idea. So there's a very strong, clearly established sense of self. So we have an image of ourself. If I had you know, an image of ourselves with the thing we want or having gotten rid of the thing we don't want. And we grasp that idea. The mind fixates on that idea, that image. And so that clearly, I mean, directly, that's an experience of suffering. It hurts to be grasping, fixated on some idea. Because although we don't normally see this uh, specifically, but we have to be hating this moment to be thinking, if only I'd be happy. It doesn't make sense to be content and to have a strong sense, if only I'd be happy. So this is the thing about desire with attachment or desire with identification, what we call craving and grasping, is it puts a squeeze right now on the moment, right? And the only thing we can actually squeeze or weigh down is the heart. It's the heart of things or the center, the sense of being right here starts to hurt and it has to hurt if this is some salvation for us. We can't have some salvation without this hurting. So that's sort of interesting. It's like, uh, you know, we always hear about the archetypal deal with the devil, where somebody sells their soul in order to get something, you know, but they'll get, get it in the end. Or that very interesting story, that portrait of Dorian Gray, maybe some of you had to read that in high school like I did, where the guy, I don't know if he actually makes a deal with the desert, uh, devil or not, but he made some sort of deal where his self-portrait up in his attic shows all the effects of his lustful and not so nice life. So he can 
do whatever he wants, but he doesn't show any ill effects from his bad actions in the world, that his portrait up in the attic begins to reflect the kind of choices, kind of actions he's acting out. So this is the thing with desiring and getting attached to desiring. It has a very specific, real, moment, momentary effect. When we're caught up, it's affecting the heart right now. And then the, the terrible thing about that is that contraction, when the mind gets bound up or lost or uh, entangled in desires, struggling with what we think we want or what we think we want to get rid of, it, it colors the mind, it distorts the mind. So we don't even, we can't even see clearly. We see less and less clearly. And because it's hurting, this desiring and the attachment to it, and because it's also distorting the mind, we think the hurt means we really need it or we need something else too. So not only do I want to become that person, but I need a good drink right now because it's really intense wanting to be, wanting to become somebody or something. I need some distraction. So we start making more and more unskillful choices because we're hurting and we don't understand the hurt. We don't understand the squeeze or the burning in the mind. And so we're looking for something to alleviate some of that. And we always seem to choose things that are very short term, maybe give us a short term distraction, short term pleasant experience. But the consequence, it doesn't really address the distortions, the, the burning, the squeeze in the heart. It actually adds to it more and more. And that's why, you know, we can feel justified doing so many stupid things, like when we're in debt, buying more things as if that's going to make us feel better. You know how that is. We feel so pressured by uh, financial issues so that it feels like some kind of relief to go shopping. I mean, when we talk about it that way, it makes, it makes so much sense. Or if we're ill uh, and our diet's not so good and it's a stress, you know, it feels so appropriate to go eat something that maybe isn't so healthy to help manage the stress. So there are a lot of these, when we get a little perspective, they're just crazy. They're insane. But we all do them. You know, it's just a question of how obvious it is for us, how painful it is for us. But we're all, one way or another, um, experiencing the results of desire and attachment to desire. And then the distortion and the squeeze, the burning that comes from it. So we have every incentive to want to understand, to better understand desire in the mind. And not to just go from the, in this reflexive way. Once we get a sense that somehow desire is connected to suffering, not to just be reflexive and think that desire is bad, which is, in a way, falling into this trap of asceticism. Not that a simple life isn't good. Simplicity can be quite a useful strategy in life, being content with 
simple needs. But that's not the real path. Maybe a useful part of the path, but it's not the whole path. Because we can get identified with the idea that desire is bad. Which is just like saying life is bad. Well, that doesn't make sense, you know, to sort of blame life for our suffering. Is it the fact that we're a living creature that needs to eat and needs to take care of the body and needs to have some sort of social connections? Is that to blame for our suffering? Like, is life itself a setup? Guaranteed? Suffering is guaranteed? Or at least we should explore that, not just assume. And that's generally what we do. We swing back and forth between indulging sense desires and then being afraid, trying to crush them, trying to convince ourselves that I don't actually have the desire that I had. I don't feel this desire. I don't. My heart isn't being moved like this. No, that's not really happening. It shouldn't be happening. Somehow, there's a mistake. One of the great things about the way the Buddha taught, he, he didn't rely on those kinds of valuations. You know, like it would never make sense. Like this is bad. We always say it's dhamma. It's the way that it is. So when there's desire, it's nature. It's dhamma. It's the way that it is. So the question is how best to understand it, not whether it's good or bad. See, good and bad only make sense from a, a, a self-centered point of view. You know, what does good and bad mean when there's no center? doesn't belong to anybody or doesn't refer to anybody, then good and bad isn't a, doesn't really enter into it. One of the things we learn about desire when we get interested in it and take it up as a, like our, because we have a life and because desire is so central to life, it's just part of the fabric of life. So we talked about in the first talk in this series how desire really is synonymous with life. So that being the case, one of the things we can discover when we look at it is just because there's desire doesn't mean we need to be afraid of it and doesn't mean we need to gratify it. And with mindfulness, we see this amazing thing. And we want to see this over and over again because it is so transforming how desire ceases without gratification. I mean, if it didn't, we'd be screwed. <laughs> like, can you imagine every single desire you've had that haven't gratified? If they were still here, it would be, you know, we'd die. <laughs> no mind, heart could hold that much desiring. But the thing is, we're not, we haven't been interested enough to just track in a neutral way with mindfulness the arising of a particular desire and then its cessation without doing anything about it. We could desire some food and we could just track that desire. Maybe you want a fudgesicle 
maybe, you know, whatever, s'more, what do we usually have? Summer evenings. You may want something like that. And you could just feel it. You could see the content maybe arise. But you're, you're letting everything move, because that's what desire is. It's a movement in the mind and body. So you're letting the content, any emotional content, any visceral feeling associated with the content, we're just letting it move. And we're tracking it, meaning we're not forgetting how it is. And it may bloom. It might actually bloom quite big. It may seem as big as the whole universe, this need, desire, craving, however big it gets, however identified we get with it. It just gets really big. But then, if it's not being fed, if the mind isn't re-establishing that, thought, that sense of me who wants that over and over again, it will follow nature's course, which is everything in nature has a birth, an expression, and then a cessation, an ending. And it's true with desires. It's true with everything. Wednesday was born. You know, it lasted for a while. And now Wednesday is ceasing. It's true with every thought, every breath, every day, every life, every desire. And the more we have the interest to see the birth and death of desire, then we, we can say, we can honestly say, we're beginning to understand what the Buddha was teaching. He was teaching this path of developing the stability of mindfulness so we can be a student of desire. If we don't have a kind of um, momentum, uh, trust, and awareness, there's no way we can be, uh, we can learn anything from desire. Because as soon as we turn the attention to desire, the lack of stability in the mindfulness will cause the mind to get identified with the content of the desire and just start moving with it. We become one with the desire. I am this. I'm the one who wants this. There's no space in the mind, no perspective that this is something being known. And this really brings us to the, the first powerful insight. So once we understand the path, we commit to it. We commit to being a student of desire. This natural, unavoidable, appropriate movement of the heart. The heart is constantly moving with desires. The desire to move our leg, the desire to be free, the desire to be seen, to be heard, to be accepted, the desire to be safe. I mean, every, everything that we do, of course, comes out of desire. Even the little twitches and movements of our mind and body, where do they come from? Where there's some intention, some desire, some um, will to do. So if we become a good student of this, we start to, uh, start to have an insight over and over, deeper and deeper, where we begin to understand that there may be desire and then there's an awareness. And this really allows seeing the experience of desiring, seeing it as two things, the desire and the awareness of the desire. And it, you know, we can't really tease it out. 
Because the awareness of the desire, of course, depends on the desire to be known. Right? You can't have awareness without the object of awareness. I'm not saying there isn't awareness without an object. I'm just saying that right now, for us, as you know, beginning students, we recognize awareness because things are illuminated. Like, I know there's awareness because I see you. And uh, if there was no you, I wouldn't be sure there was awareness. But because I have an object that I can see or hear or think, then there must be consciousness that's knowing that, because I know it. But the more we get the mind gets stable and interested, the more we understand that although these two things are related or interdependent, there's a way that the mind can lean into the content of the desire and, in a sense, establish identity there. Or it can take refuge in the knowing of it. And this, of course, isn't just true with desire. It's true with the knowing of anything. And so when the momentum of awareness practice, mindfulness practice, deepens, strengthens, becomes really like uh, the main habit of the mind to be present in a relaxed and clear way. And the main value that we have is the value for sort of a truthful recognition of how it is right now. More, more than any other value, more than the value to be kind, or you could say the value to be kind or compassionate, we recognize is completely dependent on being connected. And in order to connect, we have to have this value of being aware, of letting awareness do its job, I guess we could say, knowing how it is in the moment. And then we begin to see that, that in every moment, in a way, there's we have a, a choice or a two different allegiances. We can come into allegiance with the content of the moment, the content, let's say, of our desire. Oh, yeah, yeah. Or we could get caught in like, no, no. You know, like, don't, don't pick up that desire. But in either one of those examples, you know, whether you're indulging in the desire or afraid of it and think desiring is bad, where the mind has that choice to get identified with the content, or in a sense, it can relax back into the knowing, knowing that it's like this, knowing that the heart is being moved like this, being attracted, repulsed like this, and just being in the awareness of that. Now, this is an insight, meaning initially we don't understand that choice. So if you don't understand that choice now, I mean, intellectually, hopefully it's somewhat clear, but experientially you may not understand that. Because with practice, developing mindfulness, you'll realize that there actually are two sort of places to land. We can land as a person who really wants this or really doesn't want this. Or we can land in the experience of, oh, this is being known. This is being known. This is being known. This is just something being known. 
This is just craving being known. You know, like when we're caught up in lust, you know, it's as if, I mean, this, is, this isn't, isn't exactly right, but just as an image, it's as if, you know, we're stepping back. The awareness, in a sense, is stepping back. This is a preliminary sense, like where the sense of witnessing this sort of lustful adolescent craving out of its mind. But there's a sense of space. Oh, this is adolescent lusting out of the mind, you know, being out of the mind, being insane, feeling justified to do things that will cause a lot of suffering. Oh, and it's like this. This is being known. And it's like this. So we see it really clearly as something that's being known. And so this is our practice. Once we start to have this insight, then because we've, uh, what sets up that insight is over and over again, recognizing yourself as the one who's caught up in desire. Now this should be pretty easy because this is almost always true that we're caught up in desire or we're hating it, which is just another way of being caught up in desire. I'm caught up in the desire of not wanting to have desires. So if we keep seeing that and noticing that burning, that squeezing, then naturally, without anybody doing anything, the question will arise, is there any way around this? Is there any way, is there any way to avoid this burning, this squeeze? You know what it's like, like, I really want this to happen. And if we have the wherewithal not to just get continually lost in the endless proliferation around that, but just to notice, wow, that really hurts to really want something to happen. Even something spiritual, I really want to go on this retreat. I really want to be free of all of my responsibilities so I can just practice. Right? Even that kind of desire can be burning. And so if we look at the burning, the question arises, is there any other way, any space, any freedom from this? And that's where we'll begin to recognize, however faintly, the possibility of just being aware that it's like this. Oh, this is just desire. And this is where, at least from time to time, a little language can be helpful. It can support and even prompt the deepening of this insight, where we use a phrase like, is being known. You know, blank. So you name the content, you name the hook, what the mind is hooked on. You name it, and then you just say something like, it's being known. This is being known. This is being felt. This hurts. It's this feeling. It's like this. So the language, instead of the language of ownership, it's in a language of awareness. Something is being known. Something is being felt. And it's like this. And so we're cultivating that the uh, entanglement or the desire, that movement in the heart, and then the awareness of it. And over and over, we'll go back and forth, feeling entangled, caught up in it, and then having some space around it. And then caught up, and then some space. And what is happening is this insight is, is clarifying, it's deepening, where we understand that suffering always 
occurs with identification. That the cause of the suffering, the cause of that burning, is the mind's identification. It isn't the desire, it's the mind's identification with that movement in the heart. There's nothing inherently wrong about being outside and observing a beautiful sunset and being moved by that. But if you get identified to that with that movement, then that can really hurt. And your mind can proliferate endlessly about how you think God made a mistake and sunsets should last longer, or we should have perpetual suns- sunsets. I mean, you could. You could move to the near Arctic, and you can get sunset you know, for a few months of the year, and then go to the Antarctic for a few months, and you get it. If you haven't been up that far north, you know, the whole day the sun is just over the horizon, but not much. So it's a little bit like dusk or sunrise all day long. But, you know, there's just endless extremes. You know, then we think, well, you just need to be up a little bit higher. You know, and then it's really nice if there's some, like, hills to sort of give some shade to the sunset and just the right kind of clouds, you know, that catch it in just the right way. It's endless. But just that momentary movement, you know, to be moved by something beautiful or to be moved by something tragic, like to see suffering, to let, to allow the heart to be sensitive in that way so that we're not afraid of the heart being moved over and over again. But, but the heart doesn't get, the mind doesn't get stuck with the movement, with the intensity. It's really the art of life, you know, life comes with intensity. but we tend to get stuck with intensity, whether we create it through our own imagination or it just lands in our life circumstance and things are intense. We build a sense of self and separation around the experience of intensity. So now we're undoing it by developing stable mindfulness, beginning to recognize that whenever there's something intense, there's the intensity and the knowing of it. The intensity and the knowing of it. And when we learn to take uh, refuge in the knowing of it, something comes alive that we didn't realize. See, the thing is, the reason why we get identified with desire is there's a charge there. There's a personal charge when we take things personally. I really want this. We feel so alive when we're, we've got certainty. It feels so, our life feels so solid. Like, yeah, I'd be so much better if I got rid of or if I got... So we have to, in a way, we have to find another um, way to feel alive. And this is an important transition. So as we're learning to trust knowing, the knowing of desire instead of the fixation on desire, initially it may feel a little dead, like we've lost something. And we have. The life that had been lived, which is identification with desire, we're weaning off of that. And so there's, it's very appropriate to grieve, like maybe when you were younger, you allow, allowed yourself to kind of go crazy when, you know, oh, my favorite TV show's on, you know? Or, I, I'm making spaghetti, it's my favorite meal. And You know how you can whip up drama? We can whip up drama in our life, you know? I get to go to bed pretty soon. <laughs> 
And it's like, it becomes important because we make it important. You know, I get to see my friend or whatever, whatever it might be. Even little things can sort of be meaningful, but we sort of construct the meaning. We whip it up. And we're constantly needing to whip it up in order for it to be meaningful. It's exhausting. So that's one way we have meaning and one way we feel alive. And it's exhausting and it causes the heart to get squeezed and burned. But there's another way, which is if we're willing to grieve the loss of what never really worked anyway, just sort of whipping ourselves up, getting fixated on desires and the movements of the heart, which are very ephemeral. Whatever the desire might be, whatever you think you want to become, even that will be pretty ephemeral. Everything in life is very ephemeral. Like, can you believe, like, I'm 53 now. I mean, it's amazing I got to 53 so soon. (laughs) It doesn't feel like I'm 53. And it's just amazing how fast 53 years can go. I remember thinking, you know, God, wait till I'm 40. I'll be so old when I'm 40. (laughs) Now it seems like, well, 60 is just around the corner. And I think something comes after that. (laughs) Guess I'll find out. So when we cultivate that insight and trust in the knowing, then, and we're willing to grieve the loss of our fixation on desire, then something starts to come alive that in a way is immeasurable. Something that's unconstructed, a a life force, I think we could say, that we didn't construct, a feeling of being alive that's just there naturally. And we've been missing it because we've been trained, our mind has been conditioned to look for uh, energy with self-drama. It's totally missed this other kind of aliveness. You could call it the aliveness of love, or the aliveness of joy, or the aliveness of wholeness or non-fragmentation. Desire breaks up the mind. It divides the mind into good and bad, this and that, me and you. But when we're not playing that game, when we're not identifying with desires, and it's just the movement, when there's movement without anything dividing it up, then all of a sudden we begin to feel, realize something whole and complete and alive with movement. And it's like, oh, this is what we've been looking for. And this is another insight. It's sort of the development of that insight. So first we have the insight that the mind can actually let go of what's not working, this identification with desire. And it's hard to do that. But we know in our bones it doesn't work. That's what is allowing us to let go and to trust knowing. It doesn't seem like much, but we're sure it doesn't work, so we're willing to do it. And then lo and behold, this refuge, which we didn't think was much to begin with, turns out to be quite amazing and uh, really delivers the heart's release. Not because, in a sense, we've got what we want, but we've discovered a wholeness that doesn't depend on getting or losing. It's something inherent. In Buddhism, sometimes we call it the unconditioned, so that we don't make it an object that the self has acquired. 
but it's when that selfing, that selfing activity is abandoned, the identification to desire is abandoned, then a natural wholeness arises. We just feel alive and light and responsive and willing, able to commit because the heart isn't afraid. It isn't afraid that we're going to not get what we deserve in life or we're going to get the short end of the stick because the contentment is seen as something inherent instead of something we have to negotiate or struggle to get and then to maintain. And then it even it goes the insight even goes beyond that so we begin to feel that that experience of being full or alive for no good reason. It's not like what we've got is a is determining or causing that wholeness or that that feeling of completion, contentment. And the more we're able to just recognize or realize that without grasping it, without it becoming the next cause for desiring or for the attachment to desire, the more we realize, as I've mentioned, how simple that is or inherent that is. Paul, it's just a matter of trusting or not forgetting. Not forgetting and trusting. And the great thing is, you know, our personality, it's conditioned the way that it's conditioned. We're going to desire certain things, like certain things, not like other things. But we don't have to be afraid of the conditioned personality. We don't have to blindly uh, identify or act out the conditioned desires or conditioned habits of this personality. We don't have to blindly reject it and be afraid of it or judge it. There's a, there's a sort, you know, and you, I'm sure people in the room already have recognized moments of this where our relationship to the conditioned personality is really light and maybe playful, but, but not being um, pushed around by it either. You know, so light, but not stupid about, because, you know, some of the habits we have to respect because, you know, in certain situations might trigger certain desires that even if we have a lot of insight, we can be blinded. I mean, there could be a very big book of all of the so-called enlightened or wise Buddhist teachers that have done really stupid things <laughs> in the area of money and sex and who knows what else um, currently and in the past. And you know, this is just endemic in spiritual circles, not just Buddhist circles. So we want to we wanna have this relationship with the conditioned personality of both respect, but just holding it lightly. Like, we don't want to turn our conditioning, our habit energy into some big weight we have to drag through life. You know, I was raised by these kind of parents and this kind of culture and I've got these sort of genetic programming and, uh, you know, because it's, it's actually missing the point, right? Is it that we need a perfect set of uh, personality habits in order to be a happy, alive, loving, wise human being? Or is it that we just need to understand 
the personality, understand the kind of desires that arise, not being confused by them. And that's really the question. Because one is a really heavy trip, and a lot of people confuse all spiritual paths, Buddhism included, that it's all about fixing the personality. Like we're here to get rid of what's bad and to become perfect people. That's its own kind of hell realm, to have to be a perfect person. So it isn't even about not making mistakes. It's about not being confused by mistakes. So if we do, you know, if it is one of those situations where the certain life circumstance triggers a certain conditioned habit of the mind, and the mind is blinded by the intensity, gets identified, acts it out, and then maybe later recognizes what happened. Well, then in that moment, the first thing we do is we understand what's well, like this now. We don't wish it weren't like that because it is like that. I did do that. I did say that. I can't believe it, but I did say that. And now it's like this. Now it's like this in the sense of the shame in the mind body. It's like this. The problems in my life, they're like this. It's all like this now. Right? And all kinds of other desires are going to arise because it's like this. Now we get to practice not being confused by these desires, not proliferating, but just seeing them. Because desire, what is desire? It's just the information, like how the past interprets the present moment. That's what desire is. And sometimes the past will do us a good job interpreting the present moment. And sometimes the past doesn't do a good job interpreting the present moment. But now we have mindfulness. So mindfulness is there. We've got the information in terms of the desires that are present. And we have mindfulness. The mindfulness has a sense of how good that information is, how good the information of desiring is. Is this the kind of desire, kind of impulse or intention that should be followed or should be seen and observed and accepted, let it bloom and let it cease without acting on it at all? And that's how we fix or take care of the messes we've created when we get blinded by our desires. I'll just end with a, a little story. Some of you maybe have already heard of Deepama, a very well-known teacher of the last century, an Indian woman who did some practice in Burma in her early 40s, I think, after losing one child and her husband, uh, maybe even two children, I forget now, and uh, heartbroken and, and then sick and then went to the monastery and started practicing, doing Vipassana practice at one of the Mahasi centers, a famous Burmese teacher in uh, Rangoon. And she had uh, sort of natural inclinations for this practice and developed deep insight very quickly and became a teacher of a number of the Westerners and uh, people who later became teachers here in the West. And one person once asked her, you know, because she was so respected, what what actually is in your mind? You know, what do you notice in your mind? She said, I noticed three things. Emptiness, wisdom, stillness, concentration, and loving kindness. 
And this is, uh, I think, just a beautiful example about how simple it is. You know, the emptiness, it means the mind isn't confused. The, the non-confusion, the mind not being confused by the movements of the heart, by the movement of desire. So that's what emptiness means. Not that there isn't movement, there isn't sensitivity. The emptiness is the absence of confusion, the absence of self-confusion, self-drama, self-centered confusion. Concentration is that absence of that self-centered drama is experienced as a kind of silence or stillness in the mind. So when Buddhists talk about stillness, they're talking about the absence of self-centered drama. That absence, that's the stillness or the silence. It doesn't mean there aren't actually sounds or there aren't actually sights being seen or even thoughts. It just means the agitation of self-centered drama is relatively or completely out of the mind. And in that experience, there's a quietness or a silence, the silence of self-centered drama. And then loving kindness is that movement I talked about. So when we're not caught up in the neurotic movement where we got identified with desire and we're whipped up that self-drama, there's still a movement, as I described, and that's the movement of love or compassion or metta, loving kindness. It's, it's like uh, it's the life force when it's not distorted by self-centeredness. Because there's still a life happening, right? So what's the motivation or the governing force of that life that's happening now that there's an emptiness of self-centered drama? Well, whatever you want to call it, I mean, it's something. The life doesn't cease to exist just because there's not neurotic selfing going on. So we call that life motivated by love or compassion. Endless or effortless or boundless love and compassion. There's no, because there isn't anybody doing it. It's the natural movement of all things. So I'll leave it here. There's about 15 minutes. It'd be nice to hear from people. Maybe you have some examples from your own life you'd like to share with the group or questions you might have about the talk. Your experiences with desire, experiences being caught in it, being free with it. What comes to mind? Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking a lot about it this weekend. Uh, with a lot of different things, but like with wanting to eat something, and while I'm almost, as soon as I'm almost done with something that's really good, I, while I'm still eating it, I'm thinking I'm going to have some more after this. You know what I mean? And that feeling like there's net. You're. I'm already aware that when it ends, I'm going to be like, oh. You know, so it's already disappointing before I'm even done with it. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's quite interesting, that whole yeah. phenomenon. And that's, you know, when we're in that place where we clearly are seeing how uh, insane it is, that's where the natural, notice the natural question, what's another way? You know, what's another way, given that I'm going to be eating, 
you know, as long as I'm alive? What's another way to relate to the different movements that coincide with eating or thinking about eating? You know, because that will that will illuminate just the awareness. So that because right now we're personally invested in the eating, but there's a way to eat and to taste and to appreciate without being personally invested. That this is um, somehow I'm getting something from this food because that's endlessly disappointing. I get some place uh, some places sometimes with around food where it's like I'll be sitting there. The Seward Co-op is only a few blocks from where I live. You know, we generally have lots of good food at our house. And it's like, I'll see that the hunger is for some kind of self-centered food, you know. And I'm just assuming I'll get it from food. But it's like everything I imagine, even the most perfect dish, and like I'll give myself permission. You can go get whatever you want. But it's like I'll see it's not really going to take care of that. And we really want to get to that place, because that's that place of allegiance. Are we going to be endlessly needing to feed this hungry beast that has a bottomless gut? Because it doesn't. we don't get satisfied by gratifying desire. Every time you've gratified desire, has it actually led to less desire? No. I desire as much now as I did whenever. Hopefully I'm not as confused by it, but the, that force is still alive so we need to transform how we see it it hurts though this is this is painful work because it means we actually have to feel the effects of attachment to desire and we don't want to actually be there when we have it yeah is it mike, mike. Um, your uh, sunset thing isn't that far from <laughs> well, my experience i was on this bike ride or about that is like how much this hurts but how if we're entranced with the image of the perfect Minnesota lake home on the North Shore let's say then we could be the mind if it's if the concentration is good enough now this is not a positive kind of concentration the mind is fixed on that image enough we can, can be completely oblivious to how painful it is and that is the cause for samsara these cycles of suffering it's that the imagination masquerades the real pain involved in that craving. Thanks for that great story, Mike. Yeah, Bhante. Um, I was
separateness from that um, identification with that physical sensation, then the sleep doesn't take you and it doesn't sort of set in very heavy. Um, but I actually had a question. I don't know if it, uh, it, it's, it kind of hedges into how exactly does that relate to the idea of single-pointed concentration? Because I know in the past I've gotten confused with this idea that if I'm single-pointed on an object, then I've actually taken that to mean that I lose myself into the object. And that's never actually been, obviously it's not very beneficial. That actually leads to sleep. Like losing the sort of separateness of, of me experiencing. Yeah. But, but uh, the absorption, you know, when the, when the mind gets absorbed in sleep, you know, it is in a sense a kind of absorption, but uh, the mind is in balance. So the, the kind of like, absorption in terms of concentration practice or jhana, pra- jhana practice, it's like the mind is finding a, a, like a resting place. It's like a, a resting place that already exists, like a, a beautiful balance that already exists that isn't being recognized. But once the mind begins to intuit that, then it can it, it intuitively recognizes it as a kind of landing place. And by definition, the, these absor- absorptions, like the, the ones the Buddha taught, they're a balance of, uh, of energy and stillness. So the mind's very alive, but it's all potential energy. It doesn't need to do anything. So that's, and it has a, the, the landing place has a, its own integrity. And so the mind is held in that place in kind of an equipose until the mind it naturally sort of, you know, di- dissipates at some point. Um, so the, the key for like a proper absorption is the mind has to intuit that's why, like, the object, you know, the initial object is important. The mind has to intuit the, uh, the sort of proper place. So, like, one of the ways the Buddha would talk about it is in terms of the five jhanic factors and to really understand, you know, the importance of connecting and sustaining and the joy and the ease and the stillness and to recognize those factors and how they operate in the mind. So like some teachers, they have students really get very clear about each of those qualities of mind before they do the more uh, jhanic or absorption practices. Um, yeah, I don't know if that gets at what you're going, but yeah. And sleep, you know, sleep is like uh, a wonderful object because like you said, the mind just wants to sink into it. It wants to lose itself into that object. But uh, I would see that in terms of desire. It's like part of, like you said, part of the reason the mind wants to go there is it thinks I'm going to get something there. You know, I'm going to get this comfort. But the thing is, it's like we've had so many sleeps. (laughs) So it's not that it isn't pleasant. We don't want to deny the fact that it is pleasant. I mean, it's really pleasant to go to sleep. It is pleasant to go unconscious. But we shouldn't build it up to be something more than what it is. You know, it's just 
it's just that that gooey, soft, fuzzy feeling, you know. Yeah. Thanks. Time for one more. Yeah, Meski, is that how you say it? Yes. Um, so I had a question in terms of um, when you are aware and then you know what's going on and you say, oh, what's going on now? Where do you move from that state to right action? Because I can understand sometimes when things are really coming in from the heart, it just flows. But when I'm entangled, and I'm aware. I actually don't know where I'm again in tandem, in tandem. So I, I, I was just being stuck with where do you move from here to, or what do you know, when do you know that that's the right action and things are not, when things are in a personal nature and it's, okay, I need to make this decision, but mm-hmm. I'm being really obsessed about it now, but just, you know, know this. And then I, I'm aware and I'm like, I'm not completely and I'm oblivious to it, or I don't know how to move. <laughs> well, what's in the way of movement? Uh, what's what? What's in the way of action? Um, I think it's a confusion between whether that action is another desire or whether that really the right action. Yeah. So. Well, we won't know. You know whether something's the right action, but what we're doing, the, the the change is instead of being the one who does things, we're in a sense like if we want an identity, we're the one who understands the quality of intentions in the mind. So we're 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 the one who understanding the different desires, the different movements in the heart, and just understanding kind of where they're coming from, like what kind of conditioning. Is a lot of greed in that conditioning, a lot of fear, a lot of wisdom. So we're, in a sense, we're the person, we're sitting there, we're watching the mind, and we're just aware of all the different impulses and intentions, and, and whether they seem, appear to be skillful or not. And we're totally okay about action. We're not, we're not trying to prevent or do action. We're just letting action come. But but our resolve is action, whatever action happens, is going to come with as much awareness as I can bring. But we're not afraid of action, because we'll learn either way. If we do something that we think is coming from a pure place, but turns out isn't a pure place, that's okay, we'll learn. Or we think it's an impure place, but we can't stop ourselves, it turns out, oh, maybe that wasn't so bad after all. So a lot of times we don't know, but if we take our stance in the awareness and the discerning awareness of intention, of awareness, of uh, rather of desire, then we'll get better. But at first it does feel like we're freezing up, but it's because we haven't learned the art of being aware without repression or suppression. But actually it's possible to be mindful without suppressing anything. That's why we practice with easy things like breathing, you know. Can we be, like, you notice when you're mindful of the breath, it's so hard to be mindful of the breath without controlling it. But if we practice, we can be mindful of breathing. We can be mindful of walking without controlling the walking. So we start with relatively easy things, and then we can be mindful of talking or mindful of acting in the world, at least to some degree, where the mind is able to track the different intentions. So a lot of it for you might be just like trusting like trusting that you're doing enough to track and you don't need to worry about making mistakes. 
Because you're, you're in it for the learning, not for being perfect. Yeah, and let's leave it here. Take a few moments. Have some time for a few breaths together. And appreciating the beauty of these teachings, these ancient teachings passed on by women and men through the centuries, from the time of the Buddha on down. And of course, they had conditioned personalities just as we do. So we commit to doing our practice and being part of the causes and conditions leading to more wisdom, more compassion, more ease in the world. So may this be so. Thanks again, everybody, for coming. I just want to do our monthly reminder.